Greetings, and welcome to Mind Matters News. This week, you're just in time to join Bruce Gordon and our guest host, Michael Egnor, as we dive into quantum mechanics and the nature of reality, idealism, and how to interpret the findings of modern neuroscience. Enjoy! At its most fundamental level, is reality more like a mind, or is it more like a physical object? That question and questions like that are fundamental to our understanding of nature and our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of God. I have the uh, unique privilege uh, to uh, interview today on Mind Matters News, Dr. Bruce Gordon. Uh, Dr. Gordon is Associate Professor of the History and Philosophy of Science at Houston Baptist University, and he's a Senior Fellow at the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. Dr. Gordon is a dear friend uh, and a brilliant man, uh, and I hope to learn a great deal about uh, what is at the fundamental root of nature. Uh, So, Dr. Gordon, welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I, I, after that introduction, I, I kind of feel like I should crawl down a hole and just leave things uh, where, where they are, because uh, <laughs> that, that was over the top. But thank you, Michael, and, and you have my utmost respect uh, a, as well, uh, for you are, if anything, far more accomplished than I am. Uh, I, I've learned a lot. I, I should point out to our listeners that Dr. Gordon and I uh, both attended a um, conference on uh, philosophy of mind and on neuroscience uh, about a year ago. And uh, he opened my eyes to uh, idealism uh, and to what I think is a much deeper insight into the nature of reality. Uh, So perhaps we should start, uh, Dr. Gordon. uh, What is idealism? There are a lot of different varieties of idealism. And rather than go through a laundry list of its variations, let me just start with the kind of idealism that I would be an advocate of, which is an ontic theistic idealism. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's it's essentially a form of idealism that is probably most closely identified with the Anglican bishop, uh, George Barclay. So how would you define it? it? Basically, it's the idea that material substances as a uh, substantial entities uh, do not exist and are not the cause of our perceptions. Uh, they do not mediate our experience of the world. Rather, what constitutes what we would call the physical realm are ideas that exist solely in the mind of God, who, as an unlimited and uncreated immaterial being, is the ultimate cause of the sensations and ideas that we as finite spiritual beings experience intersubjectively and subjectively as the material universe. So we are, in effect, living our lives in the mind of God, and he is the mediator of our experience and of our intersubjectivity, rather than some sort of neutral material realm uh, that serves as uh, a third thing uh, between us and the mind of God, so to speak. How does idealism thus understood relate to Plato's theory of forms? Well, you'd have to take a Neoplatonic or Augustinian spin on it. Plato thought that there was this 
realm of abstract particulars that was eternal and unchanging, a realm of forms, participation in which gives identity to the objects of our experience uh, and enables their recognition by our minds. And he had a whole theory of basically uh, in, that involved a pre-incarnate existence that, that feeds into that and, and uh, a doctrine of uh, reminiscence that we remember uh, these these forms, and that's how we recognize the the objects. But rather than that, I would prefer to look at it in a kind of an Augustinian vein. So that the Platonic forms are not mind independent abstract particulars, the way that that Plato thought, but rather ideas in the mind of God that differentiate and give identity to the and order to the objects of of our experience. So things are the kinds that they are because they fit the form of that thing in the mind of God, and that idea is communicated to us then. So there's a, a confluence then of that kind of Augustinian Neoplatonist idealism with uh, Barclian immaterialist idealism. There are, I believe, other kinds of idealism, uh, for example, uh, idealism uh, by German philosophers. And how, how, does, how does that differ from Barclian idealism? Well, I would say, I mean, it depends on who you're talking about, but let's take Kant as kind of the wellspring of all of this. So Kant advocated a kind of epistemic as opposed to ontic idealism. So Kantian idealism is entirely compatible with the existence of material substances, uh, even though they are inaccessible as things in themselves. So for Kantian idealism, you've got a self that kind of provides a, a transcendental unity of consciousness that precedes and grounds all of our experience. And our perception of reality then is governed by the innate structure of the human mind. It has space and time as a priori modes of cognition uh, and various categories of the understanding, you know, quantity and quality and relation and modality, stuff like that, that give order to our experience, but it's structured that the mind itself, by its innate structuring, uh, gives to our experience. So we never experience reality in itself, which he called the noumenal world, but only reality as it appears to us, a phenomenological reality or phenomenal reality that is ordered by the innate structures of the human mind. So Kantian idealism and its descendants uh, are in many ways an epistemic form of idealism, where the, as the Barclian form of idealism is ontic. It's a denial that there is material substance and uh, an embedding of reality in the mind of God such that it is uh, finite spiritual beings experiencing the reality brought into existence by this unlimited, uncreated, immaterial being. I, I've long been bothered by one aspect of Kant's metaphysics, or one consequence of, of his metaphysics, in that his assertion is that we can never know reality in itself. But isn't that claim itself considered exempt from Kant's view that we can't know reality in itself? That is, if we can't know reality in itself, then how does he know that we can't? How, do we, how does he know that reality is unknowable? <laughs> right, right. He, he, he seems, it seems necessary to exclude his metaphysics from the reality that we can't know. Well, he would have to maintain that he can know and examine from the inside, from the subjective structure of his own experience, I suppose, 
the innate structure of the human mind, which interposes itself between the thing in itself and our apprehension of it. So uh, if he himself is as inscrutable as the, the numeral realm, then I suppose that the objection would, would apply, but there may be some wiggle room for Kant, and I'm not sure, to say that he has direct access to the contents of the, and structure of his own consciousness and can describe that. But having described that, assuming that he's right about its structure, uh, then he has this veil between himself and the noumenal realm, the, the, the realm of the things in themselves. He only has that phenomenal realm that is filtered through the structure of his own consciousness. Yes, the, but one of the things that has always bothered me about skeptical metaphysical perspectives like, like Kant's, uh, and of course there are many others that are much more radical, uh, is that to be really consistent, you, you have to hold your own viewpoint as the exception to your skepticism. And it, it, it seems to me cheating. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, if 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 Kant is right, then Kant has no way to know that he's right. Sure, if the self is as inscrutable as the numeral realm that that it that the self supposedly filters, then that's absolutely correct. A number of uh, philosophers um, in the early modern time uh, and some today have proposed panpsychism and cosmopsychism. Um, what are they, and how do they relate to idealism? <laughs> okay. Well, incidentally, cosmopsychism would be a type of, of panpsychism. Mm -hmm. But panpsychism is basically the view that consciousness is fundamental to nature and permeates nature. It's present in everything, but to, to varying degrees. Okay? And... and Usually you encounter it as, as one form or other of, of what might be called constitutive panpsychism. So what is that? It's the idea that the consciousness that we would intuitively associate with human beings and, and other animals isn't fundamental, but it's grounded in something that is more fundamental, uh, that permeates nature itself and, and is a property of nature itself. And there are two versions of this. There's a bottom-up version, which is usually called something like micropsychism, and a top-down version, which is the the cosmopsychism or cosmopsychist version that that you referred to in your question. So micropsychism uh, or micropsychists think that uh, all facts about human consciousness are grounded and consciousness involving facts uh, at the level of microphysics, so that the macro-phenomenal truths of our experience are grounded in micro-phenomenal truths. So uh, kind of like we would think of atoms as combining to give rise to physical objects, we have uh, instead psychic atoms of one form or another that combine uh, to yield more complex forms of consciousness. Uh, and of course, that gives rise to a seemingly intractable kind of combination problem, right? How, how do you get a, a coherent macroscopic experience uh, out of fundamental physical, uh, well, how do the experiences of, of fundamental entities, say they're subatomic particles or whatever, uh, combine to yield human consciousness, uh, conscious experience? Now, coming at it from the other direction, from the top down, um, you've got something like cosmopsychism. And 
it would say that all facts about consciousness in general and about human consciousness in particular are, are grounded in facts about consciousness that concern the universe as a whole. So the universe itself is conscious, and somehow our individual consciousnesses within the universe are manifestations or particularizations of this universal consciousness that's gotten separated off and, and seems to be unto itself, but, it, but is not. It's really a manifestation of the universe's consciousness as a whole. Okay, so that, that's cosmopsychism. To, to sort of backtrack a little bit, because it's I, I, I think it's actually an, an, an utterly fascinating question, is when we make the assertion that the fundamental reality uh, of the universe is mental rather than physical, um, right. what is mental? That is that uh, we, we, we have a sense of what physical things are. They have extension in space. They, they're, they're heavy. They, they have inertia, things like that. But what is a mental thing? And can we define mental things except by what they're not? Well, of course, a panpsychist would deny this. But I would say the distinction between mental things and physical things is that for mental things, it's something, there is something that it's like to be that thing. Whereas for physical things, there's nothing that it's like <laughs> to be that thing. Right. Uh, from the inside, so to speak. Right. Of course, the panpsychist says that there's something to be like everything, <laughs> right? Right down to uh, the the most fundamental constituents of of reality that we would, from a different philosophical perspective, uh, regard as entirely impersonal. Right. Right. So, in a sense, mental things. Um, have first-person experience uh, rather than third-person. Um, Franz Brentano, a philosopher in the, in the 19th century, felt that the hallmark of, of mental things was that they're intentional, that is that they are directed towards things, whereas uh, mm -hmm. things that are physical aren't sort of about anything. They don't have any, um, any, any point to them. Um, is that definition number one? Do you think that's a reasonable way of defining mental things? And is there um, is there an application of that idea to idealism? Well, certainly intentionality is a hallmark of the mental. It's a hallmark of what it means to be conscious. That mental states are states that are about something and directed toward that which they are about. In idealism particularly an ontic theistic idealism or a theistic ontic idealism, uh, all of reality is, of course, about something and is given purpose and meaning in, in the mind of God. And when we are, as human beings, in, in sympathy with that, in, in accordance with that, we are understanding reality in that context that has been imbued with divine meaning, and we understand it from that perspective. So, yes, I think intentionality is integrally bound up in idealism. There's something that's reality that reality is about. There is a purpose that is given to reality by the divine mind, and that makes reality itself directional and intentional in respect of God's purposes. And I, I, it, it has been proposed, and I have a lot of sympathy for this proposition, that the intentionality that's characteristic of mental states is 
found by analogy in teleology in nature, uh, in a sense that teleology is nature's intentionality, which I think fits beautifully in the idealistic way of understanding the natural world, because a mind points to goals, it points to purposes and meanings. And we find that nature is just suffused with purposes and meanings. Um, do you think that's a, that's a useful perspective? I absolutely think that's a useful perspective. In fact, I, I think it's pretty much the way things are. The, the teleology that we observe in nature, the directedness that we observe in nature, the sort of things that, if you like, and I, I suspect that you do, uh, constituted the insights that were, were part of Thomas's fifth way, the argument from design, the, the, the idea that nature is directed toward a goal and the nomological or law-like structure of nature that constrains the behavior of things, which has no internal explanation, must either be taken as, which seems very strange and is deeply problematic from the standpoint of the principle of sufficient reason, uh, to take it as a brute fact. Rather, this is something that has been imposed as a, a structure on reality by the divine mind. It's discernible. It's mathematically describable. We discover it as we analyze our experience. All of this points to the teleological structure of nature, which is a manifestation of divine intentionality. Sure. So intentionality in the form of teleology absolutely pervades the structure of the universe. It's almost as if um, our minds were created in the image of the creator of the universe. It's, it's, it's almost like that, Mike, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> what is the most fascinating discovery of modern science? We each have our opinion, and uh, my opinion is a discovery that my uh, guest, Bruce Gordon, can tell us quite a bit about. When I was in college, I was a, a biochemistry major, and I, I took some courses in quantum mechanics. And it was noted in the course that when you look at the most fundamental properties of subatomic particles, matter seems to disappear. That is, that the reality of the subatomic particles uh, is that they're mathematical concepts. And um, that utterly fascinated me, uh, that at its basic structure, reality is an idea, which fits very nicely with idealism. So uh, uh, Dr. Gordon uh, is an expert on idealism and on uh, the uh, philosophy of science. And I wanted to ask him, uh, what do you think about all this? Well, certainly my own path to idealism was paved by my reflections on the metaphysics of quantum physics. So I'm deeply sympathetic to the questions that you're raising. Uh, maybe we should do a little exploring of some of the phenomena of quantum physics that seem to point in this direction. So, of course, quantum physics is a highly mathematical theory uh, that describes the nature of reality at the atomic and subatomic level. And the mathematical descriptions of quantum physics have a variety of, of uh, experimentally confirmed consequences that I would say preclude the possibility of a world of mind-independent material substances that's governed by efficient material causation. That's not the way that the world is, is constituted. 
although that has been the way and, and is the way that we, we tend to think of it because we still you know, live in a reality that seems very much to be described by classical Newtonian kinds of mathematical descriptions. Uh, however, at the most fundamental level, that's not the case. So let, let's take a look at or talk about maybe some interesting quantum experiments that point toward the mind-dependent character of reality, okay? So one of the uh, standard ways of talking about quantum physics, uh, and of course, quantum physics itself and the interpretation of it particularly has has been a cottage industry throughout the 20th century and, and on up to the present in the 21st century. Um, and there are a variety of different perspectives that, that have been offered. We have kind of standard Copenhagenism. We've got the many worlds interpretation. We've got de Broglie-Bohm, de Broglie the hidden variable theory. We've got quantum logic. We've got Girardi, Romini, Weber, spontaneous collapse theory, and on and on. But I would say that fundamentally, in the background, we've got, with all due respect to the, the de Broglie-Bohm theorists and, and other hidden variable advocates, a situation in which reality at the quantum level does not exist until it is observed. So what sort of indications do we have of that? Uh, I think one of the most fascinating ones is what in the literature is referred to as the quantum eraser experiment or delayed choice quantum eraser experiment. What this experiment is set up to do is to measure, there's this inherent duality in quantum physics as well, wave particle duality. Uh, when you're not, dis, not observing reality, it seems to behave in accordance with the Schrodinger wave equation and various relativistic uh, expressions of that and on into quantum field theory. But when you are observing it, it seems to take on a more particulate uh, character. So uh, what does the delayed choice quantum eraser experiment do? Well, it tries to measure which path a particle would have taken after interference in the wave function itself has been created that is inconsistent with that particle behavior. So you're, you've got a splitter of, of some sort that's it's going to divide the quantum wave function and send it along two different paths. And then you're gonna make a measurement along one of the paths to see uh, what, what's happening, okay? And that interference can be turned off or on by choosing whether or not to look at which path the interference uh, has taken or which path uh, the particle has taken. Um, after the interference already exists. Now, if you don't look, you get an interference phenomenon at the end. If you do look, the wave function instantaneously collapses and you detect the particle in that, uh, along that pathway. So choosing to look erases the wave function interference that already exists and gives the system a particle history. Okay, and this, this experiment has been performed under what would be called Einstein locality conditions. In other words, uh, no signal could have passed uh, subject to the limiting velocity of the speed of light between the components of the system to, to cause the effect that you're observing. Okay, so it's a non-local collapse of the wave function that instantaneously gives a particle position to the measurement 
after a phenomena that is inconsistent with that has already been created. Mm -hmm. So the very fact that we can make a causally disconnected choice of whether wave or particle phenomena are manifested in a quantum system essentially shows that there is no measurement independent and causally connected substantial material reality at the microphysical level that's, that's there. It is created by the measurement itself. What counts as a measurement? Well, <laughs> now that is a deep question. So what can count as a measurement is any sort of interaction that would localize the wave function and yield a, a determinate local result. And that could involve a conscious observer or it might not involve a conscious observer. What sort of measurement wouldn't involve a conscious observer? And does it pay does it matter how how much you pay attention if I'm <laughs> a little preoccupied. Do, do I not get much interference? But maybe a little, you know, uh, because because it, it it really implies that there's there's number one there, there there is an actual something that is observation, and it's a it's an on or off thing. It's yes or no. There's no in, there's no in between. And, and what is that? Well, so this is going to take us into certain metaphysical interpretations of what's going on. Now, on a standard Copenhagen view, you would have a collapse of the wave function to a localized result. On, say, a many worlds interpretation, which I'm not that sympathetic with ontologically, but I do see a role for in terms of deriving idealistic conclusions and embedding them in uh, a context in which the universal wave function becomes a manifestation of divine omniscience. But that, that could take us a little bit farther afield than, than we probably want to go immediately, at least. So another thing that happens, another way of describing what's going on, is to think of it in terms of wave interference and a whole bunch of different quantum systems and their wave functions interacting. Okay. Now, if you think about waves in water. You have phenomena of constructive or destructive interference. So if you think about a typical transverse wave in, in the water, moving through the medium of the water, uh, it has a crest and, and a trough. And if it meets another wave, <clears throat> say of the same size coming from the other direction, then where the crests meet, uh, the amplitude of the wave, the height of the wave, if you like, is, is, is doubled if the waves are initially the same size. But where a crest meets a trough, they cancel out and you observe calm water, even though that calmness is an artifact of the waves passing through each other and a crest meeting a trough. Now, when quantum systems decohere, as they call it, in, in, in this way, when the, when the wave functions cancel each other out in terms of, of destructive interference uh, effects, you get the perception of a calm reality, even though there, it's really just quantum waves moving through each other that, that generate that appearance. So uh, the substantiality then that you observe or the calmness that you observe around you in quantum description can be regarded as a de phenomenon of, of decoherence. It's really the, the cancellation due to destructive interference of, of all of these quantum systems interacting with each other. 
such that reality appears calm, but underneath uh, there's nothing substantial. It's just the, the, the wave functions interfering with each other. The metaphysical um, implications of this, of course, are, are fascinating and profound. But there's also a kind of just an empiric reality that we have to take into account. Say, for example, that I'm a physicist who's looking at a quantum system, and I'm actually looking at the oscilloscope or whatever our modern instrument is when it's happening. Everybody would say, well, that's an observation for sure. Let's say that I'm, I'm not in the room and I'm just taping it, but I plan to look at it later. Mm-hmm. Is that an observation? And if I change my mind and decide not to look at it, does that change the system? So all those things fascinate. I'm fascinated by what we mean by an observation because in reality, observation is a continuum. I mean, I could be watching something and then my mind wanders. And I'm thinking about lunch. Does that, does that kind of make the system go back into indeterminacy and then it becomes determinate again when I focus on it? Not necessarily if you've got decoherence happening in the quantum metaphysics of the world around you. So how, how do we bring this into relationship with um, idealism? In fact, I was going to talk about some other experiments to, to kind of further massage people's intuitions with respect to the nature of the reality that undergirds these sorts of phenomena. Let, let me talk about at least a couple more. Sure. Uh, and then we'll come back to um, the question of what's going on when we're not looking. <laughs> right, right. Like, is the moon there if no one's looking at it? Yes, David Merman, the physicist at Cornell, phrased things that way. Sure. So another phenomenon that's really quite fascinating fascinating is a phenomenon of non-localizability of individual particles. So in quantum mechanical description, if you make some physically reasonable assumptions about individual particles, most notably, I mean, there are a couple of other ones as well, but most notably that the particle, an individual particle, can't be two places at once, and furthermore, that it can't serve as an infinite source of energy, so that you can't run the power needs of New York City on a single electron uh, from here to eternity. Right? If you make those two physically very reasonable assumptions, then in the formalism, the quantum mechanical formalism, you can demonstrate that uh, the particle in question has zero probability of existing in any bounded region of space, no matter how large. And you can close various loopholes in in that to to make it kind of a rock-solid result. So what does that mean? It means that unobserved quanta don't exist anywhere in space and thus have no existence apart from being observed. And Interestingly enough, there have been experiments conducted that that would support the quantum formalism. What does that mean then? It means that as far as microscopic material individuals are concerned, while particle talk may have pragmatic utility with respect to the measurement results that we observe and with respect to, say, macroscopic appearances, it has no basis in unobserved mind-independent reality. Okay, so that's just another example that would lead in the same direction as the, the quantum eraser experiment that I talked about. Here's another one that's absolutely fascinating, and it's been dubbed the quantum Cheshire cat phenomenon. 
you you may recall from the story of Alice in Wonderland that Alice observes this this grinning Cheshire cat that that then disappears, leaving only its grin. And and Alice remarks that she's often seen a cat without a grin, but never a grin without a cat. <laughs> and <laughs> in essence, that's what's going on here, because certain experiments. Uh, in particular, one using a neutron interferometer, have separated the properties of neutrons from any sort of substrate. So microphysical properties don't necessarily dis- require a substrate. What, what did the, the experiment do? Well, it sent the position of neutrons along one path uh, and their spins along a separate path. So it'd be kind of kind of like being sending a, a, a top along one path and the fact that it was spinning along a separate path. Or, you know, the redness of an object along one path and the location of that object along another path. Uh, it, microphysical properties then can be separated from any idea of a substrate. They, they can be abstract properties moving through, through, through space. So, I, what, what do you get then? It would seem that under appropriate experimental conditions, quantum systems are decomposable into disembodied properties, it, it, kind of a collection of Cheshire cat grins, if you will. So how is it that an abstract property could exist without any sort of substrate? Well, it can't. <laughs> and of course, being a good a kind of neo-Aristotelian yourself, you would see properties as kind of mental abstractions from particulars, not existing in and of themselves, but only in the objects. Well, the the property could exist in a mind. Yes, that's exactly where I'm headed. Right, okay, yes, yes. (laughs) There is no physical substrate, but the property has to inhere in something, so it's inhering in the mind that perceives it. Uh And there is no, ultimately, there is no substrate that undergirds, physical substrate that undergirds that property. So in a way, you could look at the properties, quantum mechanical properties, as kind of abstract particular properties, tropes even, but the tropes have to inhere in something. And what they inhere in is a mental substance, uh, not a physical one. It's absolutely fascinating. What's particularly fascinating, as you point out, is how a a deep look at the um, peculiarities at, at at the counterintuitive aspects of quant of, of the quantum world suggests that only a, an idealistic uh, or an, an idealist metaphysics could make sense of all this. That materialist or perhaps even dualist met, uh, metaphysical pr- uh, perspectives fail at the quantum level, but the idealist perspective doesn't. That's very interesting. I would agree with that way of phrasing things. I'm not sure that you do entirely. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you have some reservations about it, but yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. Yeah, and I, I, I must say, no, I, I really do feel that way. Um, what, what I'm fascinated with is, uh, particularly in neuroscience, there are aspects of the hylomorphic perspective of Aristotle and St. Thomas that really do seem to make sense of um, empirical scientific results in very nice ways. And I would love to see some kind of conciliance between idealism and Aristotelian uh, metaphysics. But um, idealism as a theory of physics, to me, is the only one that's, that seems to me to be viable. I, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. 
I mean, one of the things that we didn't talk about is the possibility of macroscopic superpositions uh, as well. Having what would classically be impossible systems in uh, superpositions of uh, the position observable, systems in superposition. Well, of course, there are examples uh, of this under special laboratory conditions. Uh, you put large organic molecules have been put into superposition, but in uh, the context of uh, superconductivity, you've uh, got something called squids, and we're not talking about the, the the cephalopods here. We're talking about superconducting quantum interference devices. In that context, on a macroscopic level, uh, you've very uh, currents have been put into superposition, so that you've got, for example billions of electrons moving clockwise around a superconducting ring superimposed on similarly billions of electrons moving anti-clockwise so the two are put into superposition that way so what what's going on there uh, you can't have substantial objects in superposition that way if they're materially substantial but they can be superimposed as a projection on our mental environment uh, without any difficulty. It's like like a projection on the screen of our consciousness of, of two incompatible classical states uh, that cannot be substantial materially, but can be superimposed mentally. And we are standing as an observer outside that superposition observing it. Uh, we are not in superposition ourselves. So, uh, which I, I think in a way speaks towards something that can be said in response to the many worlds interpretation. But nonetheless, uh, that's just an added element of the peculiarity of, of the quantum world as it creeps up or percolates up into our experiential reality. Uh, and we can make it percolate up into our experiential reality under special laboratory conditions, which is why we haven't noticed it in previous centuries. And it's, it's taken modern technology and the exploration of, of reality at its most fundamental level that, that modern technology has made possible to reveal this aspect of, of the nature of the world, of the nature of reality to us. Although um, I, I must say that um, Heisenberg, uh, who was a, a philosophically rather sophisticated physicist, commented that the phenomenon of, of quantum collapse was presaged in many ways by Aristotle's notion of the um, reduction of potency to act. Uh, that is, that uh, reality uh, has a, has a, can exist in potential states, but actuality is a single state. And Heisenberg was quite impressed with, with the notion that, that, that Aristotle had a deeper insight into these dynamics, uh, and that, in, that insight was sort of lost uh, with, the, with the Newtonian physics. So maybe science is just rediscovering Aristotle. Okay. Uh, and I'm sympathetic to the idea of potentiality inhering in superposed states and then expressing itself through decoherence, mm -hmm. uh, or if you like a wave function collapse, depending on, on uh, how you're describing it, as actuality. So, yes. Uh, but, but what's going on underneath the surface of the, act, the actuality? If it's decoherence, it is essentially... Uh, destructive interference of potentiality. <laughs> right, right. 
The uh, one other thing I'll, I'll just quickly mention that, that absolutely fasc fascinated me was that um, uh, St. Thomas, uh, kind of extending Aristotle's psychology, um, pointed out that in order to understand or to perceive an object in the external environment, our, our intellect or our senses must grasp its form. Uh, and that grasping of the form is the process of understanding. But St. Thomas pointed out that in order to grasp the form, it must be reduced from potency to act in order to grasp it. It must become actual and not merely potential, which to me sounds just like the observer effect in quantum mechanics. That is, to observe something, our mind must make it actual to grasp its form. Yes, one has to render it as a, a, a concrete particular for the right. purpose of, of grasping it and right. understanding it. I don't disagree. And there is that kind of confluence of ideas that you're describing. Sure. I'm sympathetic to, to looking at it that way. You could even ask, how could, a, how could an observer, a scientist, understand a quantum system if the quantum system were not reduced from potentiality to actuality? How can you understand something that's only potential if there is no actuality to it? Right. And it, it is the interaction, if you like, of potentiality and actuality in the peculiarly quantum mechanical way that gave rise to the science. Sure, sure. It has been said that philosophy of mind has been the most active discipline of uh, philosophy over the past century or so. Uh, and neuroscience certainly has been among the most active disciplines in biology. And our question in, really is, how can we understand modern results of neuroscience from a philosophical perspective? What, what does neuroscience mean? Uh, Roger Scruton, who's one of my uh, favorite authors, famously described modern neuroscience as a uh, as as a massive collection of answers with no memory of the questions, <laughs> and um, so I what I'd like to talk with you about is is what are the questions that are being answered by neuroscientists to understand the mind? What do you think is the most satisfactory metaphysical perspective? Well, it's no secret, given your introduction, that I'm an idealist, and so that I'm going to lean in that direction for saying that immaterial consciousness really needs to be understood as the bedrock of reality. Uh, we know it firsthand, subjectively, from our, our first-person perspective, and uh, its integrated unity in our experience is kind of a fundamental datum. It's a starting point from which we can move to an examination uh, of the world and really an examination of our neurophysiology in an attempt to understand how that affects our experience of consciousness. You know, it's commonly thought that, uh, that an idealist ontology, uh, which would take consciousness as primary uh, and understand material reality in phenomenological terms, uh, would place consciousness beyond the possibility of scientific study. And, and I really don't see things that way at all. In fact, the, the access that we have to the brain is uh, through phenomenological examination. And it's very clear that, that the structure and function of the phenomenological brain constrains and channels our consciousness and capacity for experience of things. 
But uh, I don't see that fact as standing in the way of recognizing that that consciousness is does not arise from the material, uh, but is something different than the material, and then provides the basis on which we try to understand what the material world really is, uh, whether it's substantial and we're in a kind of dualistic view, or whether it's merely phenomenological and, and really that, as I said at the beginning, immaterial consciousness is a bedrock of reality. Not ours, of course, because uh, most of reality is given to us. We don't create it by our own consciousness. We, we experience it through our consciousness. Um, so there has to be a more fundamental consciousness then that is the bedrock of reality. And of course, that's the ultimate direction that theistic ontic idealism is headed in. God provides that ontological ground as the one who imparts uh, structure to reality. And of course, that structure is constitutive of our, of our experience. So that uh, God is the vera causa, if you like, of the phenomenological reality of our experience. And we can explore then the world that he's given to us, including how our experience of our phenomenological experience of our bodies is affected by what's going on as we examine the neurophenomenology of the brain. I, as, as we've talked about, I, I have enormous uh, sympathy for the idealist perspective on things, uh, particularly in physics. I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a compelling framework. Um, my own perspective has been uh, Thomist, uh, sort of Aristotelian. And, 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 and from the Thomist or Aristotelian perspective, I think there's also a, a great deal of sympathy for the idealist way. I mean, people have said Ar Aristotle was a Platonist of sorts. I mean, he, he, he didn't mm -hmm. completely break from Plato. Um, one of the things that made me a Thomist was in neuroscience, we see a very clear distinction between the dependence of different aspects of the mind on the brain. Mm -hmm. Perception, sensation, memory, emotion, very clearly depend on the brain in an almost total way. That is that if someone cuts my optic nerves, I will not be able to see, period. Uh, there's, 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 there's no ifs, if, ands, or buts. Uh, somebody gives me a shot of adrenaline, I will feel uh, anxious or fearful or excited no ifs, ands, or buts. That's, that's just what happens. And on the other hand, there are aspects of the mind that don't seem to be nearly as, as tightly yoked to brain function, uh, particularly um, the uh, intellect and the will. And uh, as an example of that, one can consider phrenology, which was a, a science uh, of reading the bumps on the skull back in the 19th century and early 20th century. And it, it was a little crazy, but it wasn't as crazy as we think it was. They didn't have any radiology, so they couldn't actually see the brain. They didn't have CAT scans. So uh, the bumps on the skull was about the best they could do. And it was known at that time that certain functions like movement of the limbs or sensations or vision were subserved by specific regions of the brain. So the phrenologists just made the assumption that everything was subserved by a specific region of the brain. So mercy or justice or, or all sorts of personality traits were also in the brain in certain locations. And that failed, of course. That, that's not the case. So I can point to the little group of neurons that make my thumb move 
but I can't point to any group of neurons that make me um, able to do square roots. There's a difference between the intellect and, as it turns out, the will, and the other properties of the mind in the neuroscientific world. And the difference is striking. Wilder Penfield, who was uh, one of the pioneers in epilepsy surgery, asked uh, a question, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, uh, many years ago, he, he asked, why are there no intellectual seizures? Seizures can have practically any content you want to think of. I mean, you can have movements, you can lose consciousness, you can have emotions, you can have sensations, you can even have thinking about concrete objects, forced thinking it's called. But you never have calculus seizures. You never have a seizure where you, where, where you have to take second derivatives whether you want to or not. Uh, you also never have morality seizures. You, you never have seizures where you compulsively recite the Ten Commandments. And Penfield says, why not? Why aren't there intellectual seizures if the brain is the source of the intellect? And of course, Aristotle and St. Thomas, you know, thousands of years ago, said the intellect is not material. It doesn't come from the body. It's a separate thing, whereas sensations and perceptions do. And I was amazed at how neuroscience backs that up. And that's actually probably the main reason that, I, that I'm a Thomist, is that Thomism is so beautifully describes modern neuroscience. But I wanted to get your perspective on that perspective. Well, there's a lot about that that seems absolutely right to me. Of course, I think you would also admit that intellectual capacity can be and is affected by what happens to the brain. Without question. Yeah. So you can shut down intellectual capacities by doing certain things to the brain. Right. But uh, at, at the same time, yeah, there are no intellectual seizures, as Penfield uh, remarked. What you might say is that the functioning of the brain is necessary for intellectual activity, but not sufficient for it, whereas it is necessary and sufficient for perception, sensation, memory, emotion, things like that. Well, it is necessary and sufficient in the embodied state. Correct. Yes. Uh, which points to some of my reservations about going full-on Thomist about <laughs> the nature of the human person in that regard. Right. Uh, I do think there is evidence from near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences in, in which you've got veridical perception of the environment while the body is in an unconscious state or even dead that provide indications and, and of course, uh, near-death experiences in the blind as well, where perception is restored right, uh, apart from the body. So, so that we're not observing a situation in which we've got a merely rational soul that survives death, but a soul, all of the capacities of which are, are restored and, and perhaps even uh, heightened in, in terms of, of the vividness of their experience. This is this is what we're seeing from the anecdotal near-death experience literature. Well, one of the um, – my understanding of, of, of the, of the near-death literature um, uh, is, as you've said, that the, the perceptual powers uh, in that state are very much heightened, uh, and not only heightened, but they're different. Uh, an example uh, would be a woman named Pam, Pam Reynolds. Uh, she um, – underwent aneurysm surgery uh, in Phoenix uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Robert Spetzler, who was a very famous uh, an aneurysm surgeon. And uh, she, her heart was stopped deliberately. She was put on cardiopulmonary bypass 
so they could stop the blood flow to her brain for about 30 minutes while they fixed the aneurysms after they had cooled her body down so she wouldn't have brain damage. And during, during this process, she reported being aware of what was going on in the operating room, even to the point of reading the uh, serial numbers on the instruments. And she said that she went up to the ceiling, and which a lot of people describe when they've had um, experiences with near death, that they'll pop up to the ceiling. But of course, from the ceiling, you couldn't read the serial numbers on the instruments with normal vision, and because they're they're tiny. So it's a different kind of perception. So I, I don't think that near death experiences contradict uh, the Aristotelian Thomistic understanding of the mind. It simply says that the substitution soul has a different kind of perception, which of course, St. Thomas would say, yeah, sure, angels, which are separated minds, have a kind of perception that's just different from, from, from what we have. Well, that, that brings me to some questions about the kind of Thomistic calomorphic dualist position with respect to the constitution of the human person. And I mean, I'm sympathetic to kind of a, a duality of structure and content, uh, if you like, in, in a, an idealist phenomenology. But when it comes to understanding the constitution of the human person, I mean, if we go back to Aristotle, and we can kind of regard Thomas as baptizing Aristotle and injecting an element of Plato in there uh, through Augustine to, to, to try to preserve a Christian metaphysics of the human person, uh, because it's not possible in straightforward Aristotelian metaphysics. Mm -hmm. The soul doesn't exist apart from the body in Aristotelian metaphysics. It's the form of the body, and it is that form-matter composite, that halomorphic composite that constitutes the human person. So uh, human beings then don't possess an immortal soul. The form departs, uh, and the body dies, and that's the end of the individual. And of course, Aquinas said, no, that's not what happens. We know that's not what happens in the Christian understanding of the human person. So he has to regard the Aristotelian form as substantial in some way. He has to kind of platonize it so it survives the dissolution of the body. But nonetheless, correct me if I'm wrong, he emphasizes the substantial unity of the human person as an integrated form-matter composite. Yes. And I, I think he put the um, immortal power of the soul, so, so to speak, uh, in the fact that um, the soul had intellect and will, that the human soul had, had intellect and will. So it it would not cease to exist when the matter of the body became disorganized because it was never completely, it, was, it, it wasn't from the matter of the body. Whereas the soul of an animal that didn't have an intellect and will would cease to exist when the matter of the animal became disorganized. That was his view, and I, I don't see it as necessarily following. Uh, just because you've got a sensate soul doesn't mean that you haven't got uh, a memory and a sense of being that would allow the persistence of the soul independent of the body. Uh, I don't see sensate souls as necessarily being dissolved with the dissolution of the body. Uh, I don't think that follows as a necessary consequence. Uh, what I'm more concerned about, though, uh, with the, the kind of Thomistic holomorphic dualism is in the embodied state, right? It, it is the composite that is the person that thinks that that is the, the, the entity that it is, is whole. Um, I'm trying to get at the idea 
that the thinking subject in the Thomistic dualist case is the hylomorphic fusion of the soul and the body. But in the disembodied state, it's just the soul. Right. And so it would seem that Thomas's metaphysics isn't really hylomorphic and Aristotelian. It's a good portion of the way to being a, a form of substance dualism in which the, the soul is the true expression of the person that it can exist independently of the body. Yes, and, and, and there's I think that's always been a tricky aspect of Thomistic dualism is um, is the, the the immortality of the soul this the that it's a subsistent form, but of course Saint Thomas and, and Aristotle would say that the 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 form and matter of the body uh, are not substances in and of themselves they're they're principles principles of intelligibility and principles of uh, uh, individuation so that. The notion that they're separate substances, I, I, I think St. Thomas would say that the human soul can exist apart from the body, but that's not its natural state. That's not, that's not the way it was created or meant to exist. And I guess it would be a substance in that capacity, but normally it's not a substance. It's, it's, it's a principle of, of a body. The, the, the body itself, matter and form, is, is the substance in the living human being. I mean, that, that there's a little tap dancing going on there, and I, I yeah, and and it's a, some tap dancing that I don't find terribly convincing. Right, right, right. right. Maybe, maybe if I if I danced faster, it would be it would be. <laughs> um, yes, yes, I, I I would agree. But the difficulty with idealism in this context is that first of all, I it's an enormously powerful and beautiful way of looking at things, and I think that it is basically true, but. There is a granularity to um, the Thomistic view that, to me, comports beautifully with neuroscience in ways that idealism is it, it almost too vague. It's, as I said, idealism doesn't speak to Penfield's question: Why are there no intellectual seizures? And Thomism speaks to it eloquently. That's what gets me: is that as, as a practicing scientist, at, at least a biologist, as opposed to uh, to, uh, to a physicist. Aristotle and St. Thomas have a lot more to say to me than Plato does. Or Berkeley. <laughs> or Berkeley. Or Berkeley, yes. Well, perhaps. Uh, I don't find the idea that the intellect in particular is less tied to the body than the senses, uh, particularly a reason to embrace uh, a kind of Thomistic hylomorphism as over against uh, idealism. I think certainly there's an interesting correspondence in the Thomistic case. Uh, I, I don't see it as something that lacks sense from an idealist perspective either, because consciousness is integrally tied to the senses in the embodied state, whereas the rational processing need not be. Mm -hmm. Um, what I find puzzling in the Thomistic sense is the perpetuation and heightening of the sensory capacity apart from the body in near-death experiences, when I don't think that's what Thomas would have expected. Uh, I think he would have expected the rational intellect to descend into sensory darkness. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly... Um... 
St. Thomas uh, wrote and thought a great deal about angelic intellects, angelic minds. And um, angels are perfectly capable of perceiving things. Perfect. In fact, they, they perceive at a much, much higher level than we do. But they perceive differently. They have a different way of knowing. And my suspicion is, uh, St. Thomas never spoke about near-death experiences that I know of, but my suspicion is that he would say that in the near-death state that the human mind is acting more like an, 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 an angelic mind because it's disembodied. The other perspective on this that I think is very, very interesting is that one may say that, of course, when a person reports what he experienced in a near-death experience. He's always doing the reporting from an embodied state. That is, it's, he's looking back on what happened and trying to explain it using language that makes sense as an embodied person. And uh, maybe that language describes as perceptual an actual experience that was not perceptual in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a purely materialistic way. That is, that that's, the, that that's the most sense he can make of it. Perhaps it points to the fact that finite beings must experience things uh, from a finite perspective, which implies uh, a locational one, in a way. And I, I, I kind of see this as, as fitting well with an idealist conception of, of what goes on, mm-hmm. such that death is not so much uh, a separation of the soul from the body, uh, so much as a change of perceptual environment in which the initial embodied state is left behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another state of consciousness that, that persists. But, but the thing that is consciousness remains constant throughout. And in fact, if, if you want to take it to a full-blown Christian metaphysics, you've got kind of a, an experiential environment 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0 sure, sure. <laughs> that, that would be associated with the the uh, initial experience of this world, then death, and the I wouldn't necessarily want to describe death as a disembodied state. Maybe it's an otherly bodied state, and then the resurrected state. Um, so anyway, I, I think there's kind of a seamlessness of the the metaphysics of the subject in in idealism that's that's easy to understand that that is uh certainly very difficult if you're a physicalist and if you're dualist in involves other puzzling aspects that we we haven't gotten into mm-hmm. the um uh, I, another example that i think uh is, is 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 really fascinating of the salience of the thomistic uh view of of psychology um, is the work of Roger Sperry. Uh, Sperry was a, um, a neuroscientist who studied split brain surgery patients. Uh, these are patients who had epilepsy and um, whose corpus callosums, uh, which is the fiber bundle that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, were severed to control the epilepsy. And he studied these people in great detail um, and uh, won the Nobel Prize for his work. And he found that th- there was a perceptual splitting that often occurred, where, for example, the right hemisphere would perceive the visual field on the left side of the visual field and vice versa for the left hemisphere, and the right arm was controlled by the left hemisphere, right arm controlled by the right, uh, by the opposite hemisphere, and so on. And there are all sorts of fascinating but very subtle perceptual changes that went on. But he didn't find, uh, and he didn't comment much on this, but if you look at his work, he didn't find there was any splitting of the intellect or of the will. 
which goes along again with you know, Penfield's observation about no intellectual seizures. And from a Thomistic standpoint, Sperry's results are very understandable. The material brain was cut, so you're going to have sensations and perceptions and things like that are also cut and can be divided. But you can't divide the intellect and will in the same way. Mm-hmm. What about the memory? Uh, Sperry didn't look at memory. Penfield looked at looked at memory. Penfield found that when he stimulated the brain, he could easily stimulate me- memories. He had thousands of memories that uh, that uh, that he stimulated. And curiously, memory. Although I think there is some debate about this within the Aristotelian Thomistic world, memory is is considered part of the sensitive soul, part of the of material soul, not part of the intellectual, uh, rational soul. So memory is very easily elicited, um, and seizures can can involve memories. And people would argue that when you remember something abstract, you can say, well, I remember calculus. Doesn't that mean that calculus must be sensitive? And people would argue that remembering calculus is simply knowing it. It's not the same thing as memory, like remembering your grandmother's face, remembering the smell of apple pie, something like that, which is a different thing. Sure. Our identity and our sense of self is intimately bound up, not just with rational memory or knowledge, but with sensory memory as well. Sure, absolutely. And certainly that is something that we would carry with us, presumably, through death in a near-death experience or (laughs) a permanent death experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering in that respect, uh, because Thomas... Uh, and I'm coming back to a theme that I mentioned earlier, Thomas would seem to think that animals do not ever survive death, that their sensate souls are so integrally bound up with their, their bodies that the dissolution of the body means the end of them. Right. And again, I don't see that necessarily as following, metaphysically speaking, from... The way I would understand it is that if, if one understands the soul as the uh, substantial form of the body, uh, the soul is essentially an organizational principle. And um, when the body is disorganized, when the matter of the body is disorganized, then the organizational principle is, is gone. Whereas there are aspects of the human soul that are not linked to matter in the same way, uh, that are not organizational principles of matter. And the human soul thereby is capable of surviving uh, the disorganization of the body. I, I see it as, as a matter of organization, disorganization. That when you when you disorganize an animal, there's nothing left. Where you, you, you disorganize a human, and you have the the intellect and will, which were not part of the body's organization to start with, so they aren't lost when you disorganize the body. Okay. Well, I, I think that then that difference. Would you say? The human soul, then, in Thomistic perception, is a rational, substantial, formal soul. Yes. Uh, whereas there is no, of course, th- this is getting back to the form as the principle of the organization of the body and the combination then forming the substance. Apart from human beings, then, there has to be this rational substance uh, that it, that is part of humanity, but you see as not being part in any respect of, or at least Thomas didn't, of lower animals. Correct, correct. I, I, basically, I think a, a nice way that, 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 I, that I think of it, I, I think is, is true to what Aristotle and St. Thomas felt, was that animals cannot think of things that are not concrete. 
that animals um, can only think of things that are perceptions, but they can't think without perceptions. Uh, humans can think without perceptions. Uh, I can think of the square root of negative one um, as a concept, but there is no object in the world that is the square root of negative one. Uh, whereas anim like a very good example is my, my dog uh, loves his dog biscuits. That's all he thinks about. He wants, he wants more dog, dog biscuits. He loves them. But he never thinks about nutrition because nutrition is abstract. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that was the big distinction, that, that animals must have concrete objects to think about. Humans can think without concrete objects. Okay. And I would still say the grounds for concluding that there is no substantial animal soul, while I understand the Thomistic reasoning uh, and the kind of constraints that are placed upon it, don't seem definitive to me. And of course, if one is not a hylomorphic dualist of a Thomistic variety, but rather a substance dualist or an idealist, of course, none of those conclusions follow. True. I, I believe that St. Thomas believed it, certainly modern Thomas have said, I think St. Thomas himself believed it, that um, if God chose, he could recreate the animal soul. So if, if you want to be with your deceased puppy <laughs> in heaven, you could, you know, if God is willing to do you a favor. So there's no, there's no reason why the animal can't be can't be re, uh, recreated. However, um, the soul is lost at the disintegration of the body in the animal. You wind up with the same sorts of questions that physicalists uh, who are Christians and see us as uh, being reconstituted at the resurrection, but not existing in between. Uh, you wind up with problems of gappy existence. Right. In, in this case. Uh, for animals. <laughs> uh, sure, sure, sure. But I, I, I think that the Thomist view is that, uh, and I do agree with you, there is a, um, there's a paucity of rigor in this. This is, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't have the kind of rigor we'd, we'd like to see. But the Thomist view is that due to the rational, abstract nature of the, of the human soul, there is a power in the soul that tends to make it immortal in a way that an animal soul lacks. And I understand that's what's being said, yes. So anyway, so that, that, that is, for me, that's a lot of, of the appeal of, of Thomism is that I see it remarkably corresponding to neuroscience. Uh, just, uh, it, it takes my breath away. The, the, the idea that St. Thomas presaged what Penfield found and what Leibniz found, or what um, uh, Sperry found, uh, what the phrenologists ultimately found, all of that was said a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, Bruce, I'm. It's it's been a privilege. It's been fascinating to talk with you. I'd love to do this again. And it's like we've we've opened up avenues, each of which could take up many many podcasts. So, uh, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us. Uh, you're you're quite welcome, and uh, I'm I'm happy to continue the conversation when we have opportunity to do so. I would love I'd love to do so. Thank thank you so much, and to our listeners, thank you for listening uh, to Mind Matters News. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. 
Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.